young Hispanic nurse who attends our church, being discipled by one of the women in our church, grew up in a town inside the country of Mexico. She came up to me after one of the services. We introduced the subject of partiality and prejudice from the second chapter of James. And she told me that she had been raised in this small town that was literally built up and around the side of a small mountain. And even though they were all Mexican, they all spoke the same language, that town was divided into sort of an invisible class system and it played out physically in relation to where you lived on that mountain. The people at the bottom of the hill were the poor, the people in the middle were the middle class, and the people at the top were of course the upper class where the finest homes were. She told me that all through her growing up years in high school, even though all the kids came who lived all over the mountain to that school, they segregated themselves by virtue of their location on the mountain. Someone from the top of the mountain, she told me, would never socialize with those who lived literally below them. She told me that because she lived at the bottom of the mountain, she never fit in with the kids who lived on the top of the mountain. I couldn't help but think that that's a perfect metaphor, that, that hill for the kind of attitude that James is condemning. It is the attitude of partiality, and you could call it by any number of names. You can call it classism. That has to do with where you live on the mountain with your wealth and power. You could call it racism. That has to do with which mountain you originally came from. And is it different from mine? Do you have any business being on my mountain having come from your mountain? You can call it culturalism. This has to do with what is it about you on, on your mountain that might be similar to me on mine. And if there is a lot of similarity, we might get along. We might get along if we drive the same car and wear the same clothes and, and like the same food, go to the same schools and, and have the same language and the same history and all like the same stuff. And then James comes along and has the audacity to say that that is evil. And he said it in church, of all things, to good people who were there. He goes on to say it's inconsistent with the gospel of Christ. And we began our study with the opening of this chapter in verse 1 with the paraphrase still ringing in my mind's from the Amplified Bible that says, stop holding your faith in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ with snobbery. Stop being what? You remember? Thank you, sir. He, we have one guy remembers. Stop being... All right, let me try it again. Stop being... One, two, three. Snobs. You got it. All right? So stop being snobs. And I told everybody they were snobs and I was a snob. I had people get up and walk out on me, but that's okay. They're snobs. <laughs> and I am too. James is saying, get your nose out of the air and get over where you came from and where you live on the mountain. I thought this was classic. A Chicago bank once asked a Boston investment house for a letter of recommendation. They were interested in a young man who had applied to work at the bank. He actually worked for this investment house. So they sent a sterling letter of recommendation about his, his family. They couldn't say enough good things about the young man's pedigree. His father, they wrote to the bank, was a Cabot. His mother was a Lowell. 
Even further back in his lineage was a blend of Salton stalls and Peabody's and other notables from among Boston's finest families. A few days later, the Chicago Bank sent a brief note back saying, the information you supplied is unimportant. We are not contemplating using this young man for breeding. We just want to know if he can work. We would expect the world to be impressed by that kind of thing. Connections and image are everything, are they not? Status, education, rank, you throw in the right name brand, an attractive face, politically correct lingo, and you got a man or a woman who knows how to go from the bottom of the hill to the top. So that's the DNA of our cultural fallen cultural norm. And the gospel comes along and it topples the norm, doesn't it? Jesus Christ did not come down to us from the top of the mountain. It was actually more than that. He lived higher than the top of the mountain. In fact, he created the mountain. He rides the winds above the mountain. And, and that's how he condescended in joining the human race. And you'd think, though, that being God, and he could choose, that when he came down, he would, he would choose to come and land on top of the mountain and show us all how to move up there. That's prosperity theology, which is corrupt. Instead, he comes to the bottom, and he shows us all how to come down. He descended to the bottom rung having planned before the foundation of the world to grow up in a carpenter's home with at least six younger half-brothers and half-sisters running around. His parents, nothing really more than migrant workers. His dad getting a job wherever he could with his carpentry skills. You'd think the Messiah in training would have chosen to be somebody's pampered child in a quiet neighborhood. But he was birthed in a borrowed cow stall and grew up with splinters in his hands. And so Origen, the late second century church leader I find this fascinating, would, would write that the wooden plows handcrafted by Jesus Christ in that shop were still in use 90 years after his resurrection. He did that good of a job. Then he begins his ministry among the Galileans. And we don't understand it, but the Galileans were on the other side of the tracks. They were considered backward. They were unimportant to the movers and shakers of the Jewish world, certainly the Gentile world. Jesus adds to the mystery of his condescension by choosing some blue-collar fishermen to be his future apostles. He also chose some well-connected rich guys, too. We know one of them was making quite a quite a lot of money with his tax collection services that evidently belonged to his accounting firm. His name was Matthew. In Matthew's gospel account, Jesus Christ, he records, delivers this unconventional message, the first shall be last. The way to lead is to serve. The way to live is to die to self. No wonder he wasn't a bestseller. Back then, you see, Jesus Christ turned the mountain upside down, and James, now pastoring one of the Lord's half brothers, the leading elder in the church in Jerusalem, was watching, and he saw very early on the Christianity and partiality 
were being mixed together. And so, under the inspiring movement of the Holy Spirit, he exhorts the believer to live out the gospel, to bring his faith down to earth. And in chapter 2, he challenges the believer to look past the face, partiality, the receiving of face, to not mix Christianity with classism or racism or culturalism. We will always have many ethnicities in the church, in this church. Praise God. And the gospel doesn't stamp all the varieties of ethnic diversities. But the church, however, becomes one new race. The church becomes one united priesthood. The church becomes one holy nation belonging uniquely to God. And our mission is to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into this marvelous light. We are the demonstration of the gospel of Christ who came all the way down, all the way down to the bottom of the hill. Now you remember, if you were with us in our last study, the believers are having a problem with this. They're having the same problem in the first century that we have in the 21st century. And so James illustrates the problem of prejudice and partiality by taking us inside a church service. It's already underway. A rich man comes in. You remember Mr. Bling Bling, don't you? Just wanted to use that word one more time. He got the red carpet all the way down to the front seats, the chief seats, which lets us know this wasn't the Baptist church. After all, the poor man comes in late. He's told to sit on the floor or go stand over there by the wall. Just stay out of the way. James tells us several reasons why this response, though small, was actually a huge indicator that how the world was acting on the outside had gotten on the inside. James neither pities the poor man or condemns the rich man, nor does God. Money is not the root of all evil. The, the love of money is the root of all evil. First Timothy 6.10. You can be poor and extremely greedy. Uh, you can be in the middle class and, and live and love, live for and love money. But that isn't James' issue here. He, he's interested in how the congregation is responding. And, and, and he watches as he illustrates how the, how the congregation fawns over this rich man. Uh, the, the word for look after or pay attention to, we studied, means to look with covetousness. They're saying in their heart, we want to be this guy. We'd love to have his life. And what's left behind is the gospel. The implication is, and Greek scholars believe it to be true, and I, and, and I would throw my hat in with them that the rich man and the poor man are both unbelievers and they've come to church to find out what's going on on the inside and they are going to leave believing the church isn't any different inside than the world is outside. See, in the church, they're chasing each other up the mountain too. I can't help but think in my study this past week that, that Jesus Christ would have been exactly the kind of young man they would have asked to sit on the floor or go stand by the wall. 
And to this day, isn't it interesting that Jesus Christ still uniquely calls and chooses those who aren't connected, they aren't wealthy, they aren't noble, which then demonstrates the gospel of grace. As I studied this text, I couldn't help but think of Spurgeon. I'm reading his autobiography right now. Two volumes, some in the beginning chapters of volume two. He was what we would call a country bumpkin. He uh, was raised in a poor pastor's home. In fact, at one point so poor, his dad being bivocational, we'd we'd call that today, meaning he had another job because his church couldn't afford to pay him enough to live off of. At one point so poor, they sent Charles to live with his grandfather and grandmother so he could eat. Charles' grandfather was a pastor also. A little more successful, a little more uh, well-paid. But they couldn't afford much. However, his grandmother did pay him a penny for each hymn he memorized. And to this day, if you ever pull out any of, a, uh, of Spurgeon's sermons, never a sermon goes by without the, the quoting of a, of a hymn or two. He began preaching at the age of 17. He preached in a makeshift barn to about 40 people. They asked him to be their pastor. He accepted. Within two years, there were 450 people, causing that little barn to bulge. And then he got an invitation to come to London, the city, and preach at the famous New Park Street Chapel that had been pastored by Dr. Gill. His body of divinity is still in print today. This was the upper crust of society. He thought they'd made a mistake in inviting him. They hadn't made a mistake. They'd heard of this young preacher boy preaching in a barn with passion. So they invited him to come, and his dad told him it was a mistake to go. He did go, and he arrived to preach to less than 100 people, even though that auditorium sat 1,000. It was dying. It had a past but no future, it seemed. A teenage girl in that congregation that Sunday recalled how Spurgeon did not fit in at all. It was obvious he was from the other side of the tracks. In fact, she said his appearance was distracting, if not comical. She wrote, and I quote this teenage girl, she said his his hair was long and badly trimmed. And I've seen a picture, it just kind of stuck out. He had a cow lick. I don't have that problem, which is really good. (laughs) He was wearing an oversized black coat. He'd obviously borrowed And his mismatched blue handkerchief with large white spots, which he graphically described as an illustration in his sermon, calling all the more attention to it, which awakened in me feelings of amusement. She would later become his wife (laughs) and pick out his handkerchief for him. He accepted the call to that little dying church, and it, it grew... Within two years, they needed to build to seat 1,800 people. And then later, the the tabernacle was built, the Metropolitan Tabernacle, which seated 5,000, and Spurgeon would preach there for a little more than 35 years. Isn't it great the way God does that? 
Not many noble. Not many wise according to the flesh. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Eugene Peterson says it this way. He's chosen nobodies to confound the somebodies of the world. See, God has turned the mountain upside down. And it's time we get it right. So what's the solution, James? I mean, how do you get this right? Well, in verses 8 to 13, which is the final paragraph of this discussion, this is sort of part two here, he delivers the answer. And, and so for the sake of our study over the course of the next hour, I mean the remainder of the hour, don't, don't get nervous, He's going to deliver, and I'll paraphrase what he says in three statements. I had as many as five. No, we needed to condense it down to three. Here it is. The first statement. Let's get reacquainted with the heart of God. Let's get reacquainted with the heart of the Father. Look at verse 8. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled on... Defining what exactly James is referring to here, the phrase the royal law is never used as an expression anywhere else in the New Testament. But James gives us a rather obvious clue. He's repeating the words of Jesus Christ from Matthew chapter 22. And there's a first section that James leaves off, not because it's unimportant, but because it doesn't fit the context of what he's stressing. The first part is to love the Lord your God, right? With all your heart, soul, and mind. And... He says this is the the foremost commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus says that on these two commandments depend, hang, all the law and the prophets. In other words, that's the heart of it. And Jesus will broaden the definition of neighbor to anybody who needs your help. This is the king's commandment. And it reflects the nature and the heart of the king. It's the law of the sovereign. It flows out of his nature. It flows out of his character. And it is a law, by the way, which means it's binding. There's no higher court of appeal. We believe it. We're to act it. We're to obey it. Follow it. Because it is from the king. It is supreme. Perhaps that's the idea of the word royal, supreme, and that it, having come from our supreme sovereign, it also demonstrates the supremacy of the gospel of grace and mercy. So all the law then, in the words of Christ, and what James is focusing on here, can be, can be broken down into two relationships, a relationship with God and a relationship with with each other. Jesus Christ summarized all the ingredients of the law in Matthew, and in that summary, and he, and he said it all. Here it is love God, love people. This is the vertical relationship. You love God. This is the horizontal relationship. We love people. If we love God, we will love people. We will care for them as God brings them into our lives. We can't say we love God if we're not loving. And we we can't just say, well, I love people, but I don't love God. They hang together. You see, in in the early church, in James' generation, the Jewish scholars believed that the law was a, a series of detached commands. 
They were all separated. And if you can envision it, the Ten Commandments, they viewed as, as uh, if you went bowling and there are those ten pins, I, I don't know if it was ten or twelve, but I think it's ten, and you roll your ball down there and you're supposed to knock some of them over and avoid the two things along the edge, which my ball, I think there's some, uh, well, anyhow, but uh, you, you knock two over and there's eight left, but there are still eight standing. That's the Jewish comprehension during the days of, of James with with the law. Uh, to keep one law is to gain credit. To break a law is, is, that goes in the other side of the column. And, and so at the end of the day, you might have enough of these that outweigh this and you're all right, which of course developed into something that the human heart panders after. It makes us feel good. And there are a lot of people who think they're going to get to heaven because of that. And they envision God up there somewhere sitting by a scale with your name on it. And the good things you do get added to this side and the bad things get added to this side. And if you can behave long enough, you can outweigh the bad with the good. And God will say, come on in. You did fairly well. But the law isn't that at all. It isn't separated bowling pins. It isn't deeds that we can categorize. It's a chain. In fact, look at verse 10. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. See, that is we are all considered lawbreakers because we have broken any one law. And that gives us the verdict, you are lawbreakers, you're transgressors. If you break one link of the law, you break the chain and become a lawbreaker. By the way, if you're hanging on this, over the side of a cliff and you're, you're holding on to a, a chain with ten links, which link is really important to you? You know, the third one doesn't matter. Uh, the ninth. I mean, I've got, I've got eight out of ten. It's all connected. I think there's another way to understand the unity of the law, which James is describing, by which we all find ourselves to be lawbreakers, is that they are all directly or indirectly related. And so I did this little exercise. If you take the sin of partiality or prejudice and connect it to the Ten Commandments, you discover that in some way, either directly or indirectly, you have violated all ten Here we go. The first and second commandments are broken simply because God commands us to not show partiality and to do so is to deny his will and place our will above his, thus idolizing our own opinion and not God's alone. The third commandment is broken because to favor someone over another is to misrepresent the name and nature of God. The fourth commandment is broken as we show favoritism in church, thus defiling our sacred worship. The fifth commandment dishonors the poor, and we should dishonor no one, especially those whom we should give our care and concern. Prejudice and favoritism effectively kills the spirit and the hopes of the poor by demeaning them and thus violates the sixth commandment. The seventh commandment is violated as we favor the rich and powerful and in so doing show infidelity and unfaithfulness to our Lord and to the bonds of this Christian fellowship. The Eighth Commandment is broken as we steal from the poor the dignity that is theirs as unique creations of God. The Ninth Commandment bears false witness because prejudice implies they have less worth than others and that is a lie. 
And the tenth commandment is broken because favoring the rich is a form of covetousness which values possessions over and above the value of a human being. All ten. Now the people in this assembly might try to say, well, okay, we broke this little thing, law, but we we did show... We did show some love. I mean, we didn't kick the guy out. We let the poor guy stand by the wall and sit. We, we, he had the same warmth we had. He got to hear the same message we heard. Um, we love him too. We just show it a little differently than when we showed it to the rich guy. No, love doesn't avoid the law. It is the highest law, and it must be dispensed equally. Because the law is supreme and the law of love is over and above all other laws. In fact, the royal law is the law of love. Just because you love doesn't mean you're not accountable to all the other laws. You can't excuse it. Well, I love this guy, but I'm doing all these things. Doesn't matter. No, you, you can't say that. Look, look. If I, if I get pulled over by a state trooper on the way home today after church. Now, you've got to use your imagination on this. <laughs> But I get pulled over because on Penny Road, it, it's, it's 45 miles an hour and, and I'm doing 47. And I get pulled over. I hate it when they do that. I'm only doing 47 and I get pulled over. But I do. Okay, so I did. And that policeman comes up to my car and he says, Mr. Davey, I, I'm, I'm on my pickup truck. And he says, I'm going to have to write you a ticket. What have I said? But I love you, officer. I mean, I really love you. But what's he going to do? He's going to look down in the window and he's going to say, excuse me, sir. And I would say, well, I, I, I just want you to know I love all the policemen of the world. He would have me get out of the truck and breathe into this little plastic thing, wouldn't he? Listen, if I promise to love all of the state troopers, can I speed? Maybe. I mean, I mean, no. <laughs> True love does not set aside the law. It should make us want to keep the law. James is saying if you really want to love, you keep the law. So classism and racism and culturalism and favoritism, in, in James' mind, are, are not just little misdemeanors, by the way. They violate the greatest, most supreme law. Partiality, prejudice, pigeonholing, whatever you want to call it, violates both the vertical and the horizontal law of God. It is nothing less than a violation of the heart of God seen in his condescension through God the Son when we discovered that God does not play favorites. God is not targeted any income level or race above another. He isn't mass marketing the gospel to attract a certain segment of society. And I get those cards from churches in my mailbox that are doing exactly that very thing all the time. Aren't you glad God doesn't do that? Aren't you glad the gospel isn't just for people who have it together, for people who live at the top of the mountain or maybe even in the middle of the mountain, that the gospel is also for the people who live at the bottom of the mountain? So what we need to do is we, we have to admit we have, we have become unacquainted with God's heart 
The solution is to become reacquainted with what Jesus Christ said is the greatest law that should govern everything else. We should also get real about lame excuses. Not only get reacquainted with the Father's heart, but get real about lame excuses. James is anticipating somebody in the assembly. They're going to wiggle out of this. They're going to say, okay, we could have been nicer to the poor guy, but look, we were nice to the rich guy. And so if you, if you were doing your math, Stephen, that's 50-50. That's one out of two. If this were baseball, we'd be batting 500. We'd be heading to the Hall of Fame. James says, you're not even getting to first base. He writes in verse 9, look there, if you show partiality, you're committing sin. You're convicted by the law's transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of, of all. That is, he is a transgressor. So James anticipates then an argument of self-defense. And he anticipates it in the Spirit of God moving through him because the Spirit of God knows full well human nature. And human nature is brilliant at concocting loopholes and excuses. Someone once said that we have several million laws to deal with all of the excuses created by people who won't keep ten commandments. So James anticipates their response. Look at verse 11. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now if you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you become a transgressor of the law. Again, he's saying the law is a unit. We're all lawbreakers, by the way, not because we've broken every law, but because we have broken the law. James is saying, here's his illustration. You don't stand before a judge guilty of murder and say, Your Honor, may I I mention that I've never committed adultery? Expecting the judge to go, oh, well, in that case, you can go free. And James uses courtroom language here. A system of justice would not say to a guilty thief, you know, it comes to my mind there are a hundred things that you've not done. So we'll let this one thing that you've done slip under the radar and you can just slide on through. You see, the problem with the human heart is, is that we would look at classism and racism and we would say, look, Lord, I haven't done bigger crimes against you like murder or adultery. And, and, and James is anticipating that. He says, you're, you're still a lawbreaker because you have violated at least one of them. You, you, can't, go, you can't fall into this human nature, uh, loophole-loving, self-defending, uh, culture-imitating attitude. You talk to somebody on the street about being a sinner and they'll respond to you with, well, wait a second, I didn't do this and I've never done that and I've never done this and I've never done that and I've never done that either. That's human nature. Because when we're confronted with the fact that we're lawbreakers, we immediately think, well, wait, God, I didn't do that or that or that or that. James is proving that we're all guilty of breaking the law and the concern of his heart is this sinful deed and attitude of partiality and he actually puts it then in the company of adultery and murder. Frankly, his point is that sin is sin and any sin is as sinful as any other sin. 
Some sin may have more serious consequences, but all sin and the violation of any sin makes us all transgressors. So we're all guilty. Like the word transgressor that James uses at the end of verse 11 is a compound word that means literally to walk beside, to step over. The word is used of someone who has a path and they're supposed to walk it and they step off. The idea is of a line and, and you step over it. We have that same expression today in the English language, don't step over the line. What do we mean? Don't transgress. Sin is stepping over the line. Sin is failing to walk the line. James calls it transgression. The world and our own fallen nature will excuse it and we will say, you know what, I've lived a good life. And if you care, I'll tell you all the things I never did. But we're guilty. I pulled off the internet a news article some time ago about this is a classic illustration of this. A gentleman who would become at the age of 91, he was a, a, a successful businessman and family man, and, and, and then at 91, he became known as the oldest bank robber in U.S. history. And when interviewed, he said, you know why I rob banks? Because I feel good about it. I, I feel awful good. I feel good for hours, sometimes days. It's fun. In 1998, I'll read this article, before his 87th birthday, a week before he entered the South Trust Bank in Biloxi, Mississippi, told the girl behind the counter to give him her money. He was caught, put in jail for three months. His cellmate was a bank robber who taught him how to rob banks successfully. When he got out of prison, he attempted again and was caught. This time he spent three years in prison. At the age of 87, he became the oldest inmate in the Florida prison system. When he got out, he eventually got a car from his nephew and attempted to rob another bank, but was caught again. Now at 91, he's in prison where he died. He was interviewed during his final incarceration, which had become kind of a news interest, and this is what grabbed my attention. During the interview, he said, I have, quote, led a good life, and I have no regrets. I lived a good life. And you know what? Much of his life probably was. But he also attempted to steal money that didn't belong to him. He also cost the taxpayer to support his incarceration and legal fees. He became a convicted felon as a bank robber. And yet even as he sat in prison, he said, I've lived a good life and I have no regrets. What's he saying? I didn't do this, 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 or that. I did this, but I didn't do this, 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 or that. I got a scale and God would say, you've lived a good life. And that's the human heart. James is saying, perhaps to our surprise, that partiality and prejudice is part of our corrupted nature. And God isn't saying to us, don't worry about it. We'll let that slip on through because you haven't done this, 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 or that. There are no loopholes. Even the violation of that law, even partiality, makes us transgressors. So what are we going to do about it? Well, here's my third and final paraphrase of James' answer. Number three, let's get resolved to show love and mercy. As we demonstrate the gospel, let's, 
Show love and mercy. James writes in verse 12, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. The antidote to racism, classism, is to remember we are accountable. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. Let's remember that there's somebody who lives above us. It doesn't matter if you live at the very top of the mountain, there's somebody higher. And as believers, we will stand before him and and he will reveal to us what he considered profitable or unprofitable. The unprofitable will be burned away. The profitable will be rewarded. And it is this law. In fact, James says, oh, by the way, it's the law of liberty. Isn't that interesting? Perhaps ironic, but it's true. The believer who lives as a slave to the will of God and the law of God knows he experiences as he obeys the greatest measure of freedom he could ever experience. Submission to the will of God brings the greatest measure of joy. There is no greater fulfillment. There is no greater sense of satisfaction and saying, Lord, whatever it is you want me to do, I am willing to do it. And here in this text, you're telling me to topple over in my own heart the mountain, to turn it upside down, to deal with prejudice and partiality in my own heart toward others. And I am willing to do that. And I will do it. For I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. By the way, this is in the context beginning back at verse 26 of chapter 1 that deals with widows and orphans. And now here in chapter 2, the poor. James writes, so speak and so act. Present, active, imperative. That's his favorite. It's an exclamation point after each one of these verbs. So speak, keep on speaking, keep on doing. Don't stop. Keep it going. Where can you do it more? Where are more opportunities that are offering you to be able to speak in love and grace and mercy and act in love and grace and mercy? Do it. Like D.L. Moody who said that every believer's Bible really ought to be bound in shoe leather. Just do it. Let's admit, though, That there are commands, and the fact that we are commanded, there is natural resistance. It must be the Spirit of God in our lives, and our surrender to the Spirit of God that takes that resistance and turns it into obedience. There's something about responsibility that, that we'll put off. There's something about the pressure to be nice that we recoil against. I don't want to be told to be nice. I don't want to be told to, to mind my manners. Why, your mother had to remind you all the time at the table. Have you ever been at the mall? I'm sure you have. Or at a restaurant? You're in the parking lot in your car and you're waiting for that person to get into their car and to pull out so you can pull in and you are convinced they are taking their sweet time. (laughs) It's actually true. It is Would you believe it? I came across... This is just wonderful. I mean, this was furry here for you. But a recent study of 400 drivers. I don't know whose job it is to study drivers in a mall, but here here it is. 400 drivers were studied and timed. And they found that drivers took longer to pull out of a space if somebody was waiting on them. I knew it. I knew it was true. 
They actually timed them. The study discovered if nobody was waiting for the space, drivers took an average of 32 seconds to open their door, get in, start the car, and back out of their spot. 32 seconds. If they saw before they got in that somebody was waiting for them, they took an average of nearly 10 more seconds. And then to those who honked, don't do that, they took five more seconds. The key is not to let them know you want their spot, okay? It's just human. It's tragic. It's funny, but it's, it's who we are. Don't push me. Don't tell me. And don't pressure me. And James comes along and he says, do it. And if you don't, you're a sinner. And he's writing to the church. He ends this discussion by saying in verse 13 what he began to to talk about for the last 14 verses. But in verse 13 he says, For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And don't misunderstand. This is a sermon all itself. I'm going to do it in about 60 seconds. James is not saying mercy is earned. If mercy is earned, it's not mercy. James is simply giving us in this verse two what they call aphorisms. These are two wise statements. Grammatically, these are two statements joined without a conjunction, which means he's dropping in general truths by way of summary. The first truth is for the world. The second truth is for the believer. The first truth is you are known for your lack of mercy. You're known to be driven to judge without mercy. You're known to classify and divide, to scramble up the mountain and step over anybody you need to to get there. Guess what? There's a day coming when you will not receive mercy. There's no mercy at the great white throne of Revelation chapter 20. Oh. The world will be judged and found to belong to their shock to one and the same class of people, namely the condemned. But for the believer who's come to know the Savior and his mercy, he says in this second aphorism, God's mercy triumphs over judgment. Because we are in Christ, his mercy triumphs. What's your scale look like? Mercy triumphs for those in Christ. Christ saved us according to his mercy, Titus 3, 5. God is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead and our transgressions made us alive in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2, 4. In us, his mercy has triumphed over judgment and we will be all found one day, much to our surprise, to be in one class. <laughs> Namely, the redeemed forever. The hymn writer put it this way, by God's word at last my sin I learned, then I trembled at the law I'd spurned. 
Till my guilty soul imploring turned to Calvary. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. The challenge of James to you, dear unbelieving person, is this. Run to the mercy of God. The message to the servant of Christ is this. Since we have received and we benefit forever from the mercy of God, can we do anything less than demonstrate the same to people who cannot do anything for us? Like the orphan and the widow and the poor. We need to get reacquainted with the heart of God. We need to get real about our lame excuses. We need to get resolved to show mercy and love to our world. Let's sing the lyrics to the hymn I quoted. By God's word at last my sin I learned Then I trembled at the law I spurned said